you took in your mouth these words. I'll bring burnt offerings to thy house. To thee my vows will pay, as I gave promise with my lips when trouble on me lay. Uh, the song we've been singing, even though it's put to rhyme, is a pretty good translation of Psalm 66. And you said you would bring burnt offerings to God. Uh, it might be significant to hear what it is we're offering to bring. So our scripture reading from this morning is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and the priest, Aaron's son, shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar. And he shall cut it into its pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire before the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar. And he shall remove its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. Then he shall split it at the wings but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our sermon this morning is only secondarily from Leviticus, although there was a reason for my reading it. 
The sermon is primarily from the psalm that we just sang, from Psalm 66. There are some amazingly deep truths in the psalm we just sang, which we should observe in order as the psalm has presented them. The first truth that we ought to observe is we should see how the psalmist loves his neighbor as himself. For the first 200 years of uh, the Protestant restoration of the church, those churches that were identified as Reformed, whether they be Presbyterian or Reformed or Congregationalist, all of them with one accord sang only the psalms in their worship. Music was the psalms. There were effectively two reasons for that. The first one was uh, the regulatory principle. God had written a songbook. And if the Spirit of God himself had put together a songbook, it was seen as a little difficult to top that. And so they sang the very words of God to worship as we do. But the second motivating factor, although ironically this didn't motivate the Lutherans, but it did motivate the Reformed, was Martin Luther had made a very big deal out of the Psalms being a little Bible. What he meant by that was in this songbook that God had written could be found all the doctrines of the Bible at one place or another. And in fact, the Psalms were very uh, instrumental in Luther's ministry. Usually when Luther is presented as the start of the Reformation, the story is told of him reading Romans 1 and coming to the realization that justification was by faith. Uh, Luther himself said that. But he also, when he described what happened, pointed out that God had been preparing him for uh, that revelation for about two years. He had been a lecturer at Wittenberg, and guess what he lectured on? He lectured on the Psalms for two years. That was his whole job. He had been studying the Psalms night and day, and Luther said, I was prepared by God to see what the true gospel was because I had been immersed in the Psalms. And so the Reformed laid hold of the book of Psalms and said, this is a little Bible. You can find everything about God somewhere in it. And so we've made a big deal out of it. But in these more recent times, you will notice that a minority of the Protestant churches sing the Psalms. There seems to be some growing interest in it, but generally in a Protestant church, you don't hear the Psalms. Why is that? Well, about 150 years ago, liberals raised their hand and said, I don't think Luther is right. I don't think that the book of Psalms contains every doctrine of the Bible. In fact, I think it omits an extremely important one, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, uh, partly what was motivating them was the fact that they didn't really understand what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. 
when we pray, when, well, let me pray this time. When we confess God's law, we spoke Jesus's words, and uh, Jesus breaks the greatest commandment. There's the greatest commandment, then there's the one that's like unto it. They're, they're parallel. The second one is to love your neighbor as yourself, and the way Christ presented it was effectively summarizing the Ten Commandments. And so when Christ says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's thinking about honor your father and mother. Don't commit murder. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't harm people with your mouth, especially with deceit. Don't steal the, the, the second half of the law. And you will find those things in the Psalms at several places. But still, the liberal would raise his hand, and he did raise his hand and say, yes, that, that's true. But Jesus gave a parable uh, about who your neighbor was, a very famous parable. He was challenged, who is my neighbor? And Christ's answer was, uh, your neighbor could literally be anyone, and in fact is, this Samaritan who absolutely despised Jews was a neighbor to his neighbor because he cared for him, brought him in, paid for his being healed at the end. You know the story. And so the liberal says, yes, yes, you know, fine, Ten Commandments, that, that's all good. But there is a emotional warmth for caring for your neighbor, finding that guy who you really hate lying in the ditch and you, you pick him up and you care for him. That's missing from the Psalms. In fact, if you go to the Psalms, you've got all these Psalms about, Lord, my enemy is oppressing me, slay my enemy, give me victory in battle. Uh, but you don't hear, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I would challenge that. The truth is, many, many of the Psalms demonstrate loving your neighbor as yourself. And this psalm in particular does that. And it does it in the way that many of the psalms do. If you were to love your neighbor as yourself, what would you want done to you? Because it's loving your neighbor as yourself, right? So love can be seen as coming to you. You're going to give that to them. Um... Who is the enemy, humanly speaking, of the people of God? Who, who rises up to attack and destroy God's church and the people in it? Who are our enemies according to the flesh? Well, generally speaking, they are unbelievers. They are people who are hostile to God, and that's why they're hostile to his church and his program, that's why they want to rend and tear the church, right? Imagine if you were one of them. You have not been given the gift of faith. You are a pagan. But you want someone to love you as they would love themselves. What is your greatest need? Why are you laying in the ditch? What has fallen you so that you can't get up and you are at 
the mercy of the elements and proceeding to destruction. Why are you there? Well, the answer is you're an unbeliever. You are not reconciled to God. You are outside the covenants, like God said through Paul in Ephesians. Now, remember, you Gentiles were outside of Israel, outside of the covenants, without God, without hope in the world. That's where the enemies of God's church are. They, they're, they're completely cut off from hope. They're on their way to destruction. Uh, they are kind of living their best life now, but it really is bad. Uh, they're miserable wretches, and the reason they're miserable is because they are not reconciled to their God. They've been created by God. They are at enmity with God. They are facing death, damnation. If you were facing death and damnation and you were not reconciled to God, what would you want somebody to do for you in the hypothetical? Well, if you had your mind about you, you would hope to God, to pardon pun, that somebody would come and call you into the kingdom, that there would be the possibility of you not being outside of Israel, not being outside of the covenants, uh, the possibility that you could be reconciled to God. That's what you would want if you were of a sound mind, right? I mean, that's what you really need. Nothing else even compares to that. Enter in the Psalms. Psalm 66 is a good example of God's people calling the world, the enemies of God's people, into reconciliation with God. Listen again to the first verse. Make a joyful shout to God all the earth. It is not make a joyful shout, O ye of the church, it is make a joyful shout to God all the earth, sing out the honor of his name, make his praise glorious. All you of the earth, say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. So what is the psalmist saying? He is calling on the world, the unconverted, outside the covenants, without hope and without God in the world. He is saying to them, come and praise our God. Come and be in submission to him. Come and receive him as God. Uh, that's what you truly need. And we are calling out to you to come into God's presence and be reconciled to him. There's a warfare aspect to it, without doubt, but the first verse in particular is a bidding of the world to come to God. It's effectively evangelism. All you earth, and later on, in I think it's verse 8, the psalmist reiterates and he says, all you peoples, not, again, the church, but all you peoples, everyone on earth, uh, come submit to God. That is loving his neighbor as himself. The second thing we should observe here is how the church of God itself is brought in to this loving of our neighbors. The Hebrew subscription to this psalm, which conservatives take the subscriptions as divinely inspired, 
is to the chief musician. Who is the chief musician? Well, he is the chief musician at the temple. The psalm has been given by God's spirit to the temple worship. When you come for the three great feasts and you're going to be involved in worship for that feast, this is a psalm that the chief musician will lead you in singing, just the way I did today. I had you sing Psalm 66, you took it in your mouth, and you spoke to the nations, you spoke to all the peoples, and you yourself, in worship of God, called all the nations to worship God. You entered that voluntarily, you sang about the goodness of the world belonging to God, so this psalm is literally designed to teach the church of God uh, to enter into this call. You are called to call the world to worship God, be reconciled to him. You can't really sing this psalm and then walk out of the temple and say, I really don't want that to happen. There's a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. And we don't want to be hypocrites. You know what Christ thinks of hypocrisy. So if we sing, come, all the earth, come to God, come, be reconciled to him, then we ourselves have to enter into that love of our neighbor. The worship of God has made it mandatory. It is the will of God placed in the liturgy of God, which is supposed to shape the people of God. We are supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, and their greatest need is they are not reconciled to God. The third thing we should note from our psalm is the psalmist has an amazing assurance that God is going to be reconciled to the world. Uh, this is where that military imagery comes up. Uh, listen again to verse 4. All the earth shall worship you. And sing praises to you. The psalmist is, is making a promise for God because this is God's word. Uh, the spirit has come upon the psalmist and has said, all the earth shall worship you. There will be a time where that's true. All the earth shall worship God. There will be a time when nobody acknowledges a distinction between sacred and secular, there will not be a time where uh, you are comfortable with the idea of, I will be Christian in certain places and I will be something else elsewhere. There will come a point where all the earth will worship you and sing praises to you. They shall bring praises to your name, all the earth, all of it. And then the psalmist says, Selah, which as you know means, okay, I've said something very significant, Stop and really think about that. Because it's not our current experience, and we're actually pretty comfortable with the world being divided up into, okay, this is sacred, this is secular, uh, it works like this, everything moves like a very fine machine. Uh, that distinction of thought, that there are things in the world that don't belong to God, and we're okay with that, we're, we're willing to let that run, is not 
the thought the psalmist has, and he has an amazing assurance that God is going to change that someday. There will be a day when all, all, all worship God. We should note the basis for the psalmist's assurance this will take place. It is not his winsomeness or his call. It is not the winsomeness of the people gathered in worship to sing this. Rather, he is assured that God will have worship from all the earth because God's power will make that happen. Verse 3 through 4, say to God, how awesome are, are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. And then I note the sailor again. He wants you to stop and really think about that. Um... God, you are powerful, and this guarantees, this assures that there will come a time when the entire world is praising you. Deism is a Western world specialty. When I use the term deism, it's a reference to a particular religious way of thinking that says it's obvious that we live in a world that is a universe of causality. Uh, you were caused by your parents, events cause events. Everything in the world obviously has a cause, and that cause has a cause, and it goes back to what has to be a primary cause. It's obvious that there's a God who did at one point do stuff, but he doesn't do anything now. Westerners, for some reason, cycle through deistic ages, where it becomes avant-garde to say, yeah, sure, I mean, somebody built the watch, but the watch is running now, the gears and the wheels are making things go, and the watch doesn't need its maker to make things happen, and that's the way God is. He created the world, he doesn't do anything, he's not involved in the world now, he's just kind of watching the world. Uh, but there had to be a creator because, honestly, intellectually, we have to say so. The psalmist would say, that's nonsense. The psalmist says, when I look at the world, I see your power doing things. I see your hand moving amazingly. The way we sang it was, how terrible are your works? And that's actually a pretty good translation uh, it doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean that what God is doing is terrible, but it has an effect upon us that we are in shock and awe, to use the modern language. God's working is so obvious to the eye of faith, God's working is so overwhelming to the eye of faith, that those who have faith in God can't miss it. They see God working all the time, and that power is beyond description. It is terrible. It is awesome. It is mighty. And so the psalmist roots his assurance in the world one day worshiping God from sea to sea, from north to south, 
in you have the power in your hand and you're not a gentleman. There is a pagan proverb that says God is a gentleman. He steps back. He doesn't really mess with you. You have to come to him because, you know, God never intervenes in human events unless you ask him. It's, it's literally pagan. The Bible has a totally different view of what God is doing. God is messing with people all the time, and he's doing it with incredible power. And there is going to come a day when the entire world worships him because of his power. We have already discussed this, but it's worth pointing out again. Uh, we should note the scope of this victory. Verse 8. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard. The victory that the psalmist is talking about is not a partial victory. It is not partial in the sense that it will only be in the heart and not in the outer world. It is not partial in that it will be part of the earth but not all of it. Uh, it is a total and complete victory of God the psalmist is envisioning here. Nothing will be separate from God. Everything will be praising him. Although there will still be some who would rather it not be that way. Verse 3 reads, Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. So even in this moment of victory where all is subdued by God's hand, there are people who can be called enemies of God, and the New King James translates it as, they will submit themselves to you. It's not a bad translation, but most modern English versions bring out of the Hebrew an emphasis that that doesn't convey too well. Uh, most other modern translations translate it along the lines of, they will cringe before you in unwilling, sullen submission to you. This is the enemy of God who has lost his power. He still hates God, but he has put himself up as God. He has stood as a rival to God. He has been wanted to be treated as God. These are the people who in the Psalms, God says, I have called you gods, but you're going to die like mere men. Uh, these are the people who call themselves gods. I can do whatever I want on earth because I have power. They're not going to be real happy in this moment. They are going to be cringing. They're going to be begging for their lives in submission, but it's not going to be a heart thing. Um, there are those who are going to suffer for having been God's rivals, but all the earth is going to be praising them. Now, as this song wafts out of the temple, and pagans who are not really on board with the idea that God is going to, in fact, be victorious, might raise the question... Why should we believe God's power will accomplish this end? I mean, you worship God, he's your God, but why should I think that he is powerful enough to do what you're saying he's going to do? Well, the psalmist answers that 
in verse 5 through 7, it is effectively the fact that God has maintained a visible kingdom on earth, even though the world hasn't wanted it there. The psalmist says, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. So, pause and think about that. If there was no God, as I have said a number of times, you would not be here. You would not be gathered in this building. There would not be a visible kingdom on earth because the people that the psalmist pictures as cringing before God in defeat, they, they don't like you. They don't like me. They don't like God's church. If there were no God, there'd be no church. It would have been eradicated like so many other people groups, like so many other movements, things bubble up in the stream and then they pop like air bubbles and they're gone forever. Not so God's church. God's visible church finds itself against the Red Sea and the largest army on earth is coming after it. And anyone with betting odds has already gone home because they've known, they, they know they've won the bet. Uh, this people is going to be eradicated. The psalmist says, God will open the sea, and he does. God has moved heaven and earth and worked in history to maintain his visible kingdom, and he's going to continue to do it. If we were going to be eradicated, we would already have been a long, long time ago. And so the psalmist says, look what God can do. He can keep his visible kingdom in a world that so hates, maligns, and wants to destroy it. God has been doing that. He opens Red Seas. They walk through. Really, you rebellious people against God, you really ought to think about that. Because the things you want to do, if God were going to let you do them, you'd have done them a long, long time ago. But you didn't then. You're not going to now. The power of God is overwhelming. This preservation of God's church even happens when God is bringing the severest judgment upon his church. The psalmist turns his mind from the deliverance of the Red Sea, and then he thinks about the deliverance from Babylon, which is a very, very different kind of deliverance. He speaks of God who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. But 
you brought us out to rich fulfillment. The power of God is so powerful that God can deliver us from God. God is a righteous burning fire. There is no darkness in him. There is no evil in him. There is nothing impure in him. He made that abundantly clear in the worship he gave centered around the temple. Uh, fire sometimes blazed out from the Holy of Holies and consumed people, which would make church a much more exciting event if that took place at this moment. But it was terrifying. It was a testimony to God's righteous indignation against sin. God is utterly, utterly righteous, and yet God still maintains his church even when we aren't. And we're not. When the church of God is at its most pure, when she is most faithful, she still falls way below what the Bible teaches God's people ought to be. And we are not in a moment in history where the church is at her apex. We are at a moment where the church is in one of her lowest slumps. If you read Jeremiah, if you read uh, the prophets at large, you have to come away with a very disturbing feeling that the church of God at this moment is pretty much like the church right before the Babylonians. And God brought the Babylonians. He said, ride over their heads. And the Babylonians said, sure, I'll do that, and rode over God's people's heads. And usually when chariot wheels run over your head, that's pretty much it. You're gone. But even in the wrath of God in its greatest, this moment in history is a type and a shadow of the coming into the world. It literally ended the ancient world and recreated a new world order. Hundreds of people groups disappeared in extinction but God delivered his church even from that moment of wrath. The psalmist says, you know how powerful God is? God can control himself. There is a proverb that says, greater is he who can control his own spirit than he who takes a city. Anything that is true of the righteous man is infinitely true of God. And God's power is checked by God's will. He will preserve his church in the most deadly of circumstances that even he himself has brought to bear. And the psalmist points and says that is power. God is infinitely powerful. And then the psalmist begins to think about the implication of that for himself and what he can be assured of and what he needs to do. In the middle of the psalm, he notes that he himself at this moment is in a moment of trouble. Doesn't define that trouble, and probably that's because the psalm has been given to us to sing in a kind of a generic way. Whatever trouble you happen to be in, the psalm works. But the psalmist is in a moment of trouble, and he has thought about the power of God to preserve his church, to, to win his will. 
And so the psalmist responds to that power of God by saying, I'm going to bring you a burnt offering. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which I have, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. Salem, this is important. Stop and think about it. Every time I've read this psalm, I have pictured the psalmist being in trouble, and so he is going to God in prayer, in his petitionary prayer. God, I'm in trouble. Get me out of trouble. Does that sound familiar? It's the way we generally pray. I mean, 90% of our prayers are petitionary. And when the psalmist says, I'm in trouble, I'm going to God, I assume that's what he's doing. He says, I will bring you a burnt offering. And he emphasizes how valuable that offer is to be um, because I'm in trouble. Is the psalmist petitioning God, and if he is, for what? And is he buying God's favor? Because this burnt offering that he speaks of is very valuable. You don't think in economic terms about livestock, but historically, that's how wealth has been measured. And the psalmist says, I'm going to bring you a great burnt offering. Is he trying to buy God's favor? Well, if we see it that way, we don't know what a burnt offering is. Last year, the midweek Bible study went through Leviticus, and we made it all the way through, so... Really, we're the few and the proud. Usually when people read through the Bible, they, they stop in Leviticus. They can't do it. But we got through, and there is an amazing first section of Leviticus where seven types of offering are described. And it begins with the burnt offering, but the burnt offering is called a free will offering. You'll notice in the reading... Uh, God said, now this offering will be brought of your own free will. You desire to do it. I'm not telling you to do this. This is something you will choose to do when you choose to do it. The first five offerings in Leviticus are that way. There is no time when God says you have to do this. You will do this when you want to do it. The last two are mandatory. When you have committed various kinds of sins, you are commanded to come bring these offerings, and they're called sin offerings, both of them. Slightly different name, but they're both sin offerings. This is not one of them. You bring a burnt offering when you want to bring it. It is not a sin offering, but nevertheless, if you listen to the reading, the offering was described as atoning, reconciling. So there's an essence of sin connected here, but it's not called a sin offering. And it's not something you do, but when you want to do it, why would you want to bring a burnt offering? Well, you will notice that in the reading, God said, now when a man brings a burnt offering, he is to place his hand upon the offering uh, the Hebrew specifically means press real hard, you know, press on the offering. And this will be 
a substitute for him. The offering represents him. So, how does the offering represent him? Well, all of it gets burnt with fire. All of it. The, the reading emphasized, you take all the pieces, you cut them up, but you put all the pieces on the fire, and they all get consumed. That's why it's a burnt offering. All the other offerings, the priests and Levites will take certain sections. The worshiper will take certain sections. And they will actually use it for feasting. But the burnt offering gets all burnt up. Absolutely every last scrap of it, except for the top of that pigeon head, gets roasted in the fire. Nobody gets anything out of it. The priest doesn't get any food out of it. The worshiper doesn't. It is completely consumed. It is completely given over to God. And it represents the worshiper. The offering is completely given to God. And it represents you who brought the offering. Our God is a consuming fire, says both the Old and the New Testament. God is a blazing righteousness. And if we were holy and completely in his presence, uh, one of two things would happen depending upon our estate. If we were like Adam and Eve, where we had no sin that blazing fire would not hurt us because it is the blazing fire of holiness, the blazing fire of perfection. But if we in our current state were to be truly with God fully in his presence, we would be consumed by his fiery perfectness. So something else has to go because that's really kind of bad for us. And so the bull or the goat or, or the bird represents us and it is fully consumed the way we ought to be. We ought to be fully in God's presence. We ought to fully give ourselves to God. There shouldn't be any part in us that is a mirror of that sacred secular distinction. When we pray to God in confession, today, we said, Lord, we know that there are things in our house, that is our life, our inner man, that will offend your gates. We know it's there. That's why we're praying, in fact. Uh, we are not wholly given over to you. There are parts of us that is not given over to you, and we're praying in confession that that's the truth. Well, the burnt offering is a testimony from God that that's not the way it's supposed to be. There is not supposed to be any aspect of your life, no, no thing at all, that is not wholly and completely devoted to God. You are supposed to be reconciled to him. That's what the covenant is about. You're supposed to walk with him. But we keep parts of our lives separate from him. The burnt offering symbolizes, no, you shouldn't do that. And you are in a condition where if you did come into my presence wholly, as you stand right now, you would be totally consumed. But it represents you needing to be closer to God, you needing to be more consumed by him. That's what the offering says to you. The psalmist says, I am in trouble. There's bad things happening to me. I thought about the Babylonian attack, and that made me think about my circumstances. This can't be a good place the psalmist is in. 
So the psalmist says, I need to come closer to God. Now, I'm, I'm sure the psalmist probably prays in petitionary prayer, but it's not in the psalm. There is only one petition that the burnt offering makes, and that is, oh, Lord, let me come closer to you. Let me come closer to the fire. Let me stand more with you. Let me repent of being partially away from you. The psalmist has the storms of life push him into greater fellowship with God. He is not trying to buy God's favor. He is saying, I have come to realize I need to be much closer to you, which is why you bring a burnt offering. When you come to that realization that I am not where I should be, I want to be closer to God, God graciously provides in the temple liturgy for a ceremony where you can do that. It's the burnt offering. And the psalmist is driven by the frustrations, the threats, the dangers of life to say, I must come closer to God. That is how he responds. Having responded in such a way, the psalmist who has been talking to the world now talks to the church. In verse 16 through 20, uh, this is how the psalm finishes. Come and hear all you who fear God. So this is not the world he's talking to. And I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. The prayer was the burnt offering, and the psalmist turns to the rest of the Church of Christ, the visible church, and he says, I want to tell you some fantastic good news. I want you to listen to me. I realized I was not where God wanted me to be. I was driven by suffering into his presence, and God let me come. God doesn't have to let you come. We are used to evangelists standing on the street corners and pulpits portraying God as just really brokenhearted and he just wants everybody to come to him and he doesn't know why people don't come to him. Um, the Bible presents a holy, righteous God who can only be approached through the most amazing of means, but God will allow you to move closer to him. Listen to me, O church of God, you're not where you are either. You hold back from God, but I have come to realize God will have mercy on me and let me come closer. He will do the same for you. That, by the way, explains that part where he says, now, if I had held on to iniquity in my heart, God would not have listened. That's because that's the exact opposite of the burnt offering. The burnt offering says, oh, Lord, I want to totally be yours. If you are sitting in his presence praying, oh, Lord, I want to totally be yours, 
and you're thinking about sin and you don't want to give it up at the very same time, you're literally pulling in two different directions at once, and you know what God says about a double-minded man. But the psalmist wasn't there. He really desired God, and God mercifully, graciously allowed what the burnt offering symbolizes to be real. I will let you come closer to me. I have made a way, and I will receive you. It begins with the evangelism of the world and the assurance that God will win. It ends with the psalmist in fellowship with God, though he has been brought in by a sacrifice. It is not terribly hard to find our Lord Christ in this psalm. Who is Christ? Well, the New Testament tells us he is the power of God. The psalmist celebrates the power of God. The New Testament says Jesus Christ is literally the power of God. Jesus Christ is the king of the preserved church. Why does God preserve his church? It is because it is the people of his dear son. Uh, He loves Christ. And you should be extremely happy about that because the reason why God will never let you go, the reason why God will never allow his church to disappear is because it belongs to his son. And then lastly, uh, who can really go stand in God's presence? Not me or you at the moment. That's why the burnt offering is what the burnt offering is. Here, bull, go, you know, because I can't. The Lord Jesus Christ could. And he is the offering that all the offerings uh, foreshadow. He is the one who comes wholly into God's presence. There is not a part of him that is separated from God. He can stand in the blazing fire and not be consumed, and he does so for us. There is nothing about this psalm that doesn't speak of Christ. It is one of the most Christological things we ever saw. Jesus Christ, the power of God, the King of kings, and the true burnt offering. Thanks be to God.